The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's begin this evening by opening up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And our text tonight is this entire chapter that deals with the church as the body of Christ, but in particular, verse number 27. And I'm not going to read the entire chapter tonight, but I I just want you to be aware that the subject of this chapter is church membership. And the Apostle Paul hits on many different aspects of membership in the chapter, and he describes the worth of each member of the body. And he comes down to verse number 27 with a very simple statement of recognition. He says, Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. And so he pressed upon the Corinthians the importance of all the preceding statements that he'd made concerning the church and that they were to remember whose body they are, that they belong to Christ, they function as his body to do his work in the world. And the close, intimate connection with Christ is accentuated by another verse of Scripture that the Apostle Paul wrote. And this is when Ephesians 5, verse number 30, where he said, For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. And I want you to remember that verse because that has a significant impact on this subject this evening. Now, our study is the Baptist acrostic. And we've used that to jumpstart a discussion about church membership. The S in the acrostic is the part that helped get us going. The S stands for a saved church membership. And that is in contradistinction to the teachings of some that it's possible to admit a person into the fellowship of the church without personal faith in Jesus Christ. Now, mainly that S in the Baptist acrostic stands for or speaks against infant baptism which would admit people into the church, young people into the church, babies into the church that are spiritually immature and without possibility of personal faith in Jesus Christ. I was reading recently the liturgy of the Lutheran Church for Procedures of Infant Baptism, and they very clearly state that they believe that infant baptism washes away the sin of the child, and through that baptism the children are regenerated. And in the ceremony, it is actually the parent who professes faith for the child, and they pray that that faith will not fail. But as we know, that is a perversion of the way of salvation. And the S in the Baptist acrostic defends against the heretical teaching of baptismal regeneration and argues for the Bible's position of credo-baptism. Now, since baptism is the door of entrance into the church, uh, into church fellowship, when pedo-baptism is denied, and I hope you're not lost on my terms, we've covered all these, pedo-baptism means infant baptism, and so when infant baptism is denied, then so is membership of that child in the church. So in our study, what we've done is to take off from that theme, and we've extended this into a decision, or a discussion rather, of, of scriptural requirements for church membership And how does that affect us in moving from one church to another? How would we get out of one church and get into another church? So first we looked at association in membership. 
And that is that the Bible's teachings is that every Christian is expected to unite in the fellowship of other believers in a church body. And since all believers are to be baptized, then it would follow that all are to be members of the Lord's churches. Secondly, we talked about qualifications for membership. We must be members of the body of Christ. So what are those requirements? What requirements must, must we have in order to be members of the body? Now, I'm just quickly running through these because we've already covered them. Thirdly was admission to membership. And in that section, we talked about ways that you get into a church. Initially, the way would be baptism. Uh, none can be members of the church who have not been properly baptized by immersion under the authority of the church. But then we learn that sometimes people move. They need to find a new church in which to fellowship. So how do you get from one Baptist church, get out of one Baptist church and into another? What, what happens if you move to a different town? And we discussed that in a case like that, that a rebaptism wouldn't be necessary. And so we talked about methods that churches use, one of which is letters of recommendation. These are exchanged between churches to show that a person is in good standing with, his, with the former church, that their baptism is valid, and there are no outstanding disciplinary problems that haven't been dealt with, and so that letter can be granted. Then we talked about the problem of not being able to secure a letter like that and how that there are many churches today that don't use that procedure any longer. And in that case, a person can be accepted into membership of the church on the basis of his personal testimony. Uh, his, uh, if his membership was not in a church of like faith and order, then baptism would be required and uh, then that baptism and his credible profession for faith is taken good for membership. Now, each of those methods is predicated upon the belief that church membership is perpetual. It is perpetual, which leads us to the fourth part of our discussion, and that is dismission from membership. How do you get out of the church? Well, earlier when we discussed the I in the acrostic, we learned that about individual soul liberty, that's what the I stands for. The I makes it clear that there is no person that is forced into church membership. In state-run churches, the government joins with the church and makes membership compulsory. Church actions are considered to be state actions and vice versa, so that not being a member of the church in some cases could mean that you're not a citizen of the country. And so there is a, a mixture of church-state authority so that membership in the church is compulsory. But Baptists teach that church membership is strictly voluntary, that there isn't anyone who can, has the right to compel you to the faith, which in turn means they, they can't force you into membership. And then likewise, once you become a member of a church, no one can force you to remain a member of the church. We don't bar the door against people that want to leave. But it has to be understood that church membership requires an action to be taken and dismission from the church requires an action to be taken. That membership is not token. You don't become a member of the church because it's a good business decision. You don't become a member in order to get a, a new database for selling a product. You know, I, I've actually seen this done. Uh, years ago, I knew a fellow who joined the church and he was an insurance salesman. And the first thing that he did was to get a church directory and contact all the members and 
set up appointments to sell them insurance. And so we told them, well, that's not acceptable. You can't do that here. And then his interest in church membership was no longer as great as it was. And so he left the church. Now, we joined the church because it's a Christian obligation. We joined because salvation has been put into our heart. We join because it's an act of obedience to our Lord and Master. Uh, We join because in that salvation that I spoke of, we have this desire that we want to fellowship with God's people. And so, therefore, to leave the membership of the church, that is, to be a member of no church, is sin. And it's sin that has to be dealt with on the church level. So I would submit to you, therefore, that once you enter into church membership, there is a lifelong obligation that never ceases to be a duty of a Christian to join themselves to uh, bodies of Christians and to be in fellowship with them as working members of the New Testament church. And this is because we enter into a relationship with Christ and with each other, and that cannot be broken unless there is sin involved. And so because of that, church membership cannot be dissolved without some issue that warrants an action of the church. Now, this, this part might surprise you, but when with your membership, you surrender the right to withdraw from membership just because you please. Something has to happen. A change has to happen that severs the church relationship. Now, in the big picture, what that means is that when you join the church, you join for life that you must be a member of the original church that you joined or a member of a like church of faith in order, like faith in order to that church if for some reason that you should move away. So it's your duty if you move away to find another church that is of like faith and to resume your work in the fellowship of that church. And so in other words, to get out of the church, it requires a sin that's worthy of severance, It can't simply be a a request that you're dropped from membership. That request would be sin because it breaks the command of Christ that we associate with the body of Christ. Now, it doesn't happen very often. This doesn't happen often. We don't usually hear things like someone says, well, just drop me from the membership of the church. I I don't want to be a member any longer. We did have a case of a husband and wife a few years ago that were angry with me and with the church. And the wife sent a letter to each of the deacons and to me and said that they wanted their names to be removed from the church roll. And there were two uh, mistakes that they made in that request. The first was that they sent the letter to me and to the deacons, and we don't have the authority to move anybody, remove anybody's name from the church roll. And, And then, secondly, they thought that membership was like a card that you carry around like you're a member of a country club. And when you decide you don't want to be a member any longer, you just stop paying the dues and you don't go anymore. Well, you can't do that because church membership is a mutual covenant between the members. The church approves admission and the church takes an action to, of disapproval to dismiss members of the church. And that's only done when there's sufficient cause because of sin. So if you become a member of the church, then you're a member of, for life unless by God's providence there's a change of circumstances. And this is sort of what I want to talk to you about tonight, that there are only three changes of circumstances that can happen for you to be able to get out of the church. One of those changes is very bad. Two of them are bad, depending upon how you look at it. So how do you get out of the church? Now, before I discuss those three ways, I do think we need to have an allowance for a fourth way. This one is beyond your control. 
It could be that the church that you're a member of becomes apostate, that the church might be like one of those ones in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 that have turned against the Lord and they act against the Scriptures. And you would have to be very, very careful before you ever came to the conclusion that the church that you are a member of is no longer a true church. That's a very serious charge. But that could be a scenario in which membership is lost and you're no longer in a true church. And so then you need to find a church in which to become a member. But that doesn't happen very often. It's more often that people just don't like the church that they're in and they take off without proper justification. Now, in the normal course of things, the way that churches operate, that are in fact true churches, that once you are a member, there's only three ways that you can get out of membership. The first one is death. If you die, you're no longer a member of the church. At least not the church on the earth. Because this is not the Democratic Party in Chicago. They're... There aren't any dead people on the rolls of the Berean Baptist Church. Uh, unlike Democrats in Cook County, Illinois, dead people cannot vote here. So if a church member dies, what it does, it messes up our ability to have a quorum. And uh, dead people can't vote. Now, apparently dead people do help the Democrats, but they're not much help here in Berean Baptist. So if you die, we will remove your name. We will remember you, but we will remove your name. I mentioned quorums for voting. Our bylaws say that we have to have a certain percentage of membership here for a vote, and uh, the dead mess up our ability to get that quorum, to get the right percentage. Uh, however, we do have some members that when we meet, they will say things to me like this, I can't be there, but I will be there in spirit. And we thank you very much for that thought, but we've never actually taken a spiritual vote. Uh, we've never assembled spirits. Uh, for fellowship. We don't have any office in the church for the Witch of Endor. So we would appreciate it if you would accompany your spirit when it comes to church. That would be a great help to us. So if you die, your membership will be terminated. We gladly accept that you've been promoted to a higher level. We're not going to hold it against you if you die. And so there's not going to be a church action taken that will remove you from membership. Well, the second way that you get out of the church is by transfer. That's by what I've talked about a moment ago, exchange of letters of recommendation uh, from churches that uh, have notified us that you've been accepted into a church of like faith and order, or it could be by your statement of faith, uh, absent of a letter, and that's assuming that you are in good standing and you're not under church discipline. So if you move and you can't attend here, you can have your membership in this church dismissed in order to join the fellowship of another church. Now, I'll pause here for just a moment. We had a little bit of a discussion about this in forum class this morning, and Brother Gary made a comment that basically what I'm telling you about recommendation of letters, changing membership in this way, is foreign to most people's ears. They don't hear these things about the church taught anymore, and so they don't even recognize what I'm talking about when I say a, a recommendation from another church into membership. That's just not hardly ever done, statements of faith and so on. People don't consider membership in that way any longer. But this is what the Baptist church does. This is what we've done for many, many centuries. So uh, this, is, this is an obligation that you have, that if you want to be dismissed from this church, then you must move that membership, your membership, to a church of like faith and order. You respect membership in the church. And uh, 
it's very important that you take care of it when you leave. So these are the first two ways. If you die, we're not going to hold attendance, not attendance against you. If you join another church by letter or you transfer to another church while you're in good standing with this church, then your obligation to us is satisfied and also to the Lord. Now, the third way of getting out of the church is not good. And this is a very unpleasant procedure for you in the church. It is agonizing. We don't like to do it. We try everything that we can to avoid this if possible because this one involves serious sin. The third way out of the church is by exclusion. Some call that excommunication. We normally as Baptists will call it exclusion. And this isn't what you do. It's what the church does because of something that you have done. The church may dismiss you because of unconfessed sin. Now, the reason that we do this requires a little bit deeper study, and that's what we're going to do with the rest of our time this evening. But before we do that, I want to roll back just for a moment to those people that I mentioned a moment ago who requested that their names be removed from membership. These things usually happen because a person has a complaint. They are disgruntled about something. Many times it's because of the pastor. I said something, I did something, or I didn't do something. And so people get mad and they want to leave. But those are reasons that are against Scripture. It's the duty of membership to be forbearing and forgiving of one another, to settle the differences that we have between each other, either by mutual discussion or by arbitration of the church. Somebody has to be at fault in that. Maybe both parties are at fault. But whatever the case is, we don't leave unfinished business and quit the church. And so when a member makes a unilateral decision that they will leave, that circumvents the authority of the church. And the church has given the pastor authority. And when a person gets mad at the pastor and won't resolve that issue, then that's the same as speaking against the authority of the church uh, since the pastor is a representative and members are representative of the body of Christ on this earth. Now, it is then a, a rare case that a dissenting member is right, usually The complaints are petty, usually they're preferences. They don't come with a chapter and a verse that's attached with them, and so they don't rise to the issue of legitimate doctrinal concerns so that a person would need to get out of the church. And so if it doesn't have all of that, if the church is no longer doctrinally correct, that's an excuse, but anything else than that, you've got to resolve differences that take place within the church. Now, it could happen this way, uh, and, and as Trump would say, believe me, uh, you, you, you don't want to count on things happening that way. In my experience, 99% of the time in good Baptist churches, it's the member that's wrong. It's the member that needs to repent. And so when a person asks to be removed or leaves no righteous cause, then he has a problem fellowshipping with Christ. If there's sin and he walks away, that has to be dealt with accordingly. Now, there are times that a member will leave the church and he'll go to another church that is of, that's not of like faith. He decides perhaps that he likes a denominational church better. And maybe that church believes in salvation by grace through faith alone. And so there is no heresy involved as far as salvation is concerned. So we don't, tell, we don't say, well, that person is a heretic. We don't treat them that way. But if they do decide to leave under those circumstances, then we believe that they have denied some aspect of the faith. And in that case, that person denies biblical church order, and the baptisms of churches that are not like faith and order are not scriptural, and so therefore those churches aren't true churches. 
And then there's another scenario. What about a person who doesn't intend to go anywhere else? He leaves the church and he doesn't go anywhere. He just stops attending. Doesn't move his membership. He just doesn't care anymore. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us how long that a person can go without attending church. And so we're left to set that standard on our own and to say enough is enough. So in our bylaws, we have a provision that anyone who doesn't attend for six months without good cause will be removed from the membership. Now, obviously, there's mitigating circumstances for that. There can be sickness. It can be age. At 101 years old, Zella gets a pass from attending church. I think we all agree with that. Another good case in point would be military service. Our son Nathan is a member of this church, but because he's in the Navy and he's stationed in Hawaii, for which we feel sorry for him, but somebody has to defend Hawaii. Uh, but we, we, don't, we don't remove him from church membership because he can't come. He's in military service, so he wouldn't be removed for non-attendance. Another case is... Uh, a person who takes longer than usual when they move away to find a good church to join. And maybe it is that that person never finds a good church. And it is possible for our church to keep that person in membership for a longer period of time to keep them under the watch care of the church if they stay in contact with us and if they're faithful to send tithes and offerings to support the church. But six months, that's generous, isn't it? We, we would generally think that a person who doesn't attend church for six months has no interest in the church, that he's being disobedient, he doesn't have any love for Christ and his people, and that's an indication that the person may not be saved. And if it goes that long, then the person should be dismissed. So almost in, in, in all of these cases, there's sin that's involved. It's just not the sin of, of uh, Hebrews 10, 10.25, not or forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. It may not necessarily be just that sin, but people stay away from church almost always because they've gotten involved in some kind of sin that poisons their relationship with the church. And I can think of many examples that uh, for that, but hardly anybody stops coming to church for just no reason. So we just need to be aware of this at this point, that you will be dismissed after a period of absence. If you move away and you don't inform us what you're doing in your efforts to join another church of like faith and order, at some point there's going to come a time when we have to make a decision, some kind of an action to dismiss you. And it's not good to be removed from the church for non-attendance. Now getting those preliminaries out of the way, I want to expand on this just a bit more. We need to talk about church discipline. Now the word discipline in most people's minds, has a very bad con connotation, a negative connotation. Discipline often hurts. It can be painful. And for that reason, many people don't think that it's possible to put two, these two things in the same sentence, discipline and the church. But the Bible doesn't have a category for discipline in, uh, that's bad for people, at least not in the sense of believers. There is no category of discipline that is bad. The root of discipline is a Latin word, which means I learn. So discipline is teaching a teaching tool to show us how to come into conformity to the will of God. And so in effect, discipline is simply this. It's how I learn to be like Christ. That's the reason that we use discipline. It's never to hurt people, but to make them more like Christ. Now, sometimes, as we know, discipline contains tough love. 
some of the actions that the church has to take towards people, it, it's hard. And we know that it's hard. And, that, and, and it's hard because we still have this leftover human nature in us that the devil uses to, for us to resist the Holy Spirit. And when we come to the very last stages of discipline, it's, it's often very tough because the purpose of that is to jolt that person, to awaken them because of their sin. Hebrews tells us that there's nobody that likes that kind of discipline. Hebrews 12:11 says, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. That's the intent. It's hard. And when you're in the middle of chastisement, it's not fun. But when it's through, the intent is exactly what the writer says there, to yield the peaceable fruits of righteousness. So discipline's not used to hurt people. Now, it always helps a Christian, or discipline might reveal that a person is not actually a Christian. And in that case, when there's a church member who isn't a Christian, and he comes under the discipline of the church, at least it could do this. It could awaken him to the fact that he's not a Christian. Then he needs to do something about his sin. Now, the last stage of discipline is very, very tough. But before you get to the last stage, there are two prior stages of discipline. The first one is what we call formative discipline. Formative discipline is the everyday work of the church. Whenever you come to church and you hear a message like this one, like this tonight, then you're being disciplined. Now, maybe you'd rather say discipled. It means exactly the same thing. It means that you are learning. You're learning how to develop good Christian character. And it's very appropriate that we would discuss this at this particular time while we're going through the Ten Commandments on Sunday mornings because those commandments are given to teach us to be like Christ. And so when we gather together for a meeting like we have tonight and we look into the Word of God, then we're teaching people to be like Christ. So every sermon that we preach are sermons of discipline. And if we get it right at this stage, if we accept the teachings of the Word of God at this stage, it takes care of the next two forms. We never have to get into the others. Those are eliminated if we get it right at this point. So formative discipline, another word for that, would be your sanctification. That you're being sanctified as you listen to the Word of God, you're learning to be like Christ. Now, if you are progressing then in sanctification, you'll catch on to the problems that cause you to be upset uh, with the pastor or with other members of the church. You'll do something about that. You'll try to avoid sin. And then when you find yourself in sin, the thing that you do is you quickly respond to that and you repent and you get out of it. Church meetings like this are the primary means of getting most of your formative discipline so if you regularly miss church then you'll find yourself subject to other forms of discipline but then even the most faithful the regular attendees of the church we're all in different stages of our sanctification now especially new christians a new christian can come to church and be faithful to every every service but they might find themselves in various willful sins or it, it might be they didn't understand something it's not it's not quite clear to them they might be just doing something wrong they might be thinking wrongly about something and it's then that we have to come to the second form of discipline and that is corrective discipline you can't get to corrective discipline without the formative because the formative teaches you what corrective discipline is now the church has to do this what the church must do is to spot sin 
and rooted out. Now, the church, rather teachers in the church or individual members of the church who want to help people, will spot an erring member in their sin and then try to correct them. And for the good of the body, we are to correct members when they sin. The Bible teaches that we have the right to correct. It teaches that we must correct. Now, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus taught that church discipline is ratified by the Father who's in heaven. This is what this verse means in Matthew 18, 18. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That simply means that in heaven, the church action is ratified as being right. Now, corrective discipline is our duty. Now, I want you to pay close attention to me because I'm laying some groundwork here that you need. This is our duty according to Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. There Paul wrote, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Look on the things of others. Now, that follows the action of verse number 3. If you regard your brother highly, then you'll watch out for him. You'll, you'll have his back. You'll try to help him in every possible way. And all of you know the basis for that. It's the second part of the Decalogue, which says that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. So we're a group of people as a church body that's always watching out for each other. This is what we read back in the text of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul says, verse 25 and 6, 26, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. And so if I see you doing something that you shouldn't do, I'll try to correct you. I mean, I, I don't want to see you hurt yourself. I don't want to see you hurt the body of Christ. And so I want to help you out of that. And so I'll correct you when I see you doing something that's wrong. I had a conversation with a member one time, and I told this man what he shouldn't do. I said, if you do this, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to have, a, you're going to have problems if you do this. He went ahead and he did it anyway. And eventually he just left the church because he wouldn't repent of it. So we had to remove him from the membership. So it's our duty as members to watch out for everybody. It's to have your neighbors back. I mean, you look on the things of others, that's what he says. Now, there's a reason why I'm laying this particular groundwork. I need to because as a member of the church, you must expect this. You must expect that others are watching you. And you should be glad that they are. And that's because you're being held accountable. But you know, that's not always the reaction that we get. Many times it's not. One of the worst things that you can say if you are a member of the church is it's, it's nobody's business what I do. Stay out of my business. No. You signed up for it when you became a member. You said that you would have the same care one for another. You said, I will watch over others as they watch over me. And so it's my business what you do. And it's your business what I do. But let me caution you about something here. Um, this is a very critical requirement that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you'll turn to Matthew 7 for just a moment, I want, to, want us to look at what has to be done before you could ever attempt to correct someone. Uh, Matthew chapter 7 
and verse number 1. I'll start there. And, and this is probably the most misinterpreted verse in all of Scripture. Probably one of the worst at misinterpretation. And let's look what Jesus teaches. Matthew 7, verse number 1. He said, Judge not that you be not judged. Now that verse is used to teach that nobody can judge what you do. And what happens is, this is a verse that gets pulled out of its context. It's separated from the rest of the text. But the Bible absolutely teaches that we can judge. Not only should we judge, but we must judge. And what we have to do is we have to look at the whole text. And it tells us how to do this. In other words, what Jesus does is reveal to us the art of judging. How do you do this? Now remember, uh, a few years ago when I was doing the exposition of Matthew... And we came to chapter 7, verse number 1 in the Sermon on the Mount. And we had a sign on our sign out front where we put the title of the message. I can't remember exactly what the title was, but it may have been something along these lines. Do not judge or something like that. And there was a young lady who, who stopped in and came into the building and never seen her before. And so I, I spoke to her after the services and I, and I said to her, Why did you decide to come into the church today? What, what brought you here? And she said, I saw the title on the sign. And I wanted to hear what you had to say about judging. And her idea was that we're supposed to be tolerant. That we're not supposed to judge anyway. And the title on the sign led her to believe, well, he's going to talk about how people shouldn't judge one another. Boy, did she ever get a surprise. And we got to the exposition here. So let's look at this. Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, there is a beam in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. So how do you judge? You do it by getting sin out of your life so that you're qualified. You don't try to correct another member while you're involved in sin yourself. So we don't look at this and say, don't judge. No, it teaches that you can't judge hypocritically. Your, your responsibility is to judge, to deal with sin, and that requires you to judge sin in your own life first and then get rid of it. And then Jesus says, now... You're qualified to see the problem that the other person has and to help him out of that, do something with that. He says, then you can cast the moat out of your brother's eye. Now, as a member of the church, this is what you expect. You're glad that your brothers and sisters esteem you better than themselves because that provides the impetus for helping you. They love you. They don't want you to hurt yourself. So never say, my life is not your business. If you don't want it that way, get out of the church. We can help you with that by dismissing you for an unchristian, unholy attitude. We're prepared for that. Now, one other comment then on that point. All of this is done for one reason, and that is the glory of Christ. All of this points up to one goal, glorifying God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And the word of God says to, unto him, be glory. Where is it to be glory? In the church, by Jesus Christ, throughout all ages, world without end. Now, then that thought brings me to the last type of discipline. And this is the toughest one. 
We don't want to do it, but if the first two types of discipline don't work, if they don't yield the proper results, then this is what we do, and we call it excisional discipline. The church is the body of Christ, and this type of discipline is to cut the infected body part out. Like a surgeon removes diseased tissue, the church is to remove those who do not respond to corrective discipline. There isn't any choice but to cut them out in order to protect the rest of the body from the cancer. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul called this purging the body, to purify it by getting rid of an offending member. This is what he says, Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. You might remember that this particular text was a, was a home for us when we were discussing the Lord's Supper and about who's qualified to come to the Supper. And you know this passage as the case of the man who was involved in sexual sin, and he'd not repented of the sin. The church hadn't done anything about it. And so what Paul did was the light of fire under the church and say, you've got to do something about this. You've got to get that man out of the church. And he said in verse number 6, if you don't do it, then the leaven of his sin will infect all of you. Now we look at that at first and we say, that is really harsh. How can we remove someone from the church? How can that be right? That proves that we really don't love them if we do things like this. But you'd be looking at it the wrong way. We have to see the purpose. Why do we do it? It's an act of love. It's an act of love intended to shock that person to his senses. It causes the person to see the seriousness of their sin. If their sin is so serious that they need to be cut out of church fellowship, that's a wake-up call to repent and to turn back to Christ. And so a true believer is going to be distraught at that because he needs the fellowship. He wants to be in the fellowship, and so he recognizes the gravity of what he's done. A collective church action against him is intended to bring him to repentance. And in the case of the Corinthian man, when Paul told them to do this, it worked. Second Corinthians shows that he repented. Now, we admit it doesn't happen all the time. Not all people repent. And the Bible says if they don't repent, then we are to treat that person as an unbeliever. Why wouldn't we? Isn't that what we expect? If a person doesn't repent of sin then we consider them to be an unbeliever. So what do we do? We pray for that person. We don't have further contact with them for any other purpose than winning them to the Lord. Now let me talk to you about that issue for just a minute. There are many church members that are guilty of circumventing the church's disciplinary process. You can't treat an excluded member as if they're still a member. Something has to change in relationship towards that person. So you can't run around with them any longer. You can't act towards that person as if nothing happened. Everything's kosher. Is that, is that a word we can use in Christian church? Everything's kosher. How, how are you going to help a person if you soften the blow of the discipline as if it doesn't matter? If you do, then you betray the body of Christ. I mean, you're, you're not acting any better than the person that's been removed from the church. I mean, you're like a person who has his gallstones removed, and you carry them around a jar with you all the time and soothe them and comfort them because the surgeon did such a terrible thing, removing your gallstones. No, you're not going to do that. Uh, what you have to do is you, you would be teaching, or what, what you would be doing, rather, is that you're teaching that person not to be concerned don't, don't worry about what the church did. Church membership is not all that important. 
And if you do, you don't love the person. Uh, you, you may think, we can't do this because God is love and God wouldn't do that. Well, it's God who said to do it. And if you think that you know more about loving people than God knows about loving people, you better study a little bit more. So the purpose of discipline is to get that person to repentance and restoration. And if you circumvent the process, you've not helped him. That's not compassion. The worst thing that you could do is to treat him as everything's all right. So if you do it, then you are also disregarding the church in the disciplinary process of another member, which means, quite frankly, that you need to be disciplined too. So that brings us back to this third way of getting out of the church. You can be excluded from membership. And I can tell you folks, that is worse than death. It's better to get out of the church by dying than it is to be excluded. Deep sin is the issue here. And you don't want to be involved in this. So here's the conclusion of the matter. To quote from Hiscox, he says, No member can withdraw from the church... He must be regularly dismissed by the action of the body. No one can have his name dropped or be excluded at his own request. Such action, if taken at all, must be taken by due process of discipline on the part of the church. Now, I want to circle back up to the third point of our outline, which was admission into the church. Here's, if there is a good part, here is the good part of all of this. I mean, besides... The, the, the actions the church have to take they're in accordance with the word of God there's another good part to this and that is when a person has been dismissed by exclusion from the church he is not in a hopeless place if he repents he can be recovered and all that he needs to do to get back into the church is to show that he has repented of his sin and then he will be readmitted and it's the duty of the church to forgive that person and bring them back and restore them to the full fellowship of the church. This is exactly what Paul said to the Corinthian church. He told them to discipline the man. And when he had repented, he says, I'm writing to you a second time to make sure that you're doing everything that you should regarding this man, that now he has repented, it is your duty to bring him back into the church. This is what we read in 2 Corinthians 2. If you're still around uh, Corinthians there, you might want to look at it. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 5. And he says, But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many, so that contrariwise you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things. And so when that person repents, it's the duty of the church to restore him. Now, I realize there are a lot of questions that arise out of this. And I'm happy to discuss it with anyone, address any questions that you have about it. But one last remark, and I'll close. And that is that we're not on a witch hunt. It's not our purpose here to hunt people down, drag them down, and do things to them. We, we know that there are sins that we fall into. We're not perfect people. We don't have an excuse to sin. We know that we're fallible. And there might be times when you think the church doesn't move quickly enough, that there's been a sin, it's been recognized, and the church hasn't moved quickly enough. But you have to realize this, that discipline is very, very serious. 
that we don't take it lightly. It's not our purpose to get rid of members. We're not looking ex- for excuses to get rid of people. We want to maintain our membership in good standing. And so it takes time with corrective discipline to do that. We're working to increase the level of the sanctification of all members. And so we don't want to very, very briefly touch on, on the action of number two, and that is corrective discipline. We don't want to just lightly touch on that in order to get to the third type of discipline. No, that's the last resort. And so very careful care has to be taken to get to the last resort. And so if wheels move slowly, there's a good reason for that. Ultimately, we want God's will to be done. We are a saved church membership, and none of these things that we're talking about tonight can be done if the church was filled up with unregenerate people. That's impossible. So good church order can't happen until the membership is truly the members of Christ's body and of his flesh and of his bones. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight. Uh, The subject that we have before us this evening needs to be taught. We realize it's not the most exciting thing that we could talk about, but these are things that the church must deal with. We must know why we deal with these things in the way that we do. And so we want, uh, we want to keep the standard that the church has had for these many years. We don't want to be the group that falls down and, and people don't understand what the Bible teaches about these things. And so we want to we'll do our very, very best to keep your church going in this world, perpetuate the faith, and teach people the truth of God's word. So we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we have to look into this tonight. And we just pray, Lord, that uh, you would bless us and help us to be members of this body that is very, very concerned about how we handle ourselves, about what we do, and how we work for you in this place. Bless us, Lord. We, We need your help in all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.